Hello and welcome to a special edition of the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier and this week we have a coaching masterclass with three men who between them have guided the form and fortunes of Roger Federer, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, Leighton Hewitt, Serena Williams, Simona Halep and now Stefanos Tsitsipas and Taylor Fritz. That's six world number ones and two of the most exciting young prospects in the men's game today. We are talking about Patrick Moratoglu, Paul Anacone and Darren Cahill, all of whom recently spoke with our very own Jill Krabus. Sit back and prepare to take some mental notes because these are rare pearls of wisdom. Let's start with the man who has been at Serena Williams' side for seven years and ten Grand Slams, Patrick Moratoglu, now also working out of his own academy with Stefanos Tsitsipas, whose meteoric rise to the world's top ten has brought with it new challenges and pressures. I think that's one of the most difficult things for tennis players. It's uh, dealing with expectations. And, um, I mean, whatever level you are, you're going to reach another level... And at that new level, you'll get to, you'll have to get used to the to more expectations from yourself and from, of course, uh, your country, the journalists, the tennis world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, it's a learning process, um, and, and you, you see uh, on the women's tour, for example, I, I named the women's tour because there hasn't been so many changes on the men's tour for a while. There has been a lot on the women's tour, so we've seen a lot of players. Uh, win their first Grand Slam and after that really uh, struggling with expectations. Uh, it's definitely not a woman thing because we have the same on the men's but again Rafa, Roger and, and Novak have won most of the Grand Slams for the last uh, 10 years so not many guys had to uh, to handle that. So that's tough. That's tough. Um, it's so much easier to play freely with no uh, n- much less expectations and uh, and have nothing to lose and uh, and I mean, we all know that it's difficult to go from nothing to lose to suddenly a lot of things to lose. You can't play the same, and uh, and you're not as efficient. So you have to learn to uh, to be able to play your game and 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 play to win, uh, even when it's more difficult. And it, again, it's a learning process. You get to know yourself. Uh, you know you f- you see your reaction in that situation. You understand it's not right because you don't get the results then, and and you. Next time you go on a tennis court with that kind of feeling, you know you know that you have to, to, to change something to be more efficient on a tennis court. And, and just for, I want to get to Nadal and Federer and Djokovic in a second because you brought them up, but just one more question about it sits a pass. Just, you know, incredible year last year. What about the, you know, the mentality of going into the next year knowing those points are coming off? Um, you know, it's always in the players' heads. Just, you know, him, sits a pass in particular. Does, is he the type of, you said he has a very unique personality is he the type that would think about that or is he the type that sort of kind of goes about his day and thinks about the next tournament one by one uh, that's a good thing with him uh, that he is he's not too much into thinking about the points is um, he sees a, the, the glass half uh, full rather than uh, half empty like he's thinking of all the things he wants to achieve he's thinking of the tournament he wants to win the more than 
about the points he needs to defend. He's, he's not defensive, and you see it's also the, the type of tennis he plays. He's not a defensive player mentally. Uh, not that it's bad, but uh, to be defensive, everybody has a different type of but game. But that's something he's worked on, right? For sure, for yeah. sure. For sure. He's always, uh, and uh, his father has a great influence in that. He always wanted him, since he's young, to go to the net and take the responsibility of the point, basically. And uh, it's funny because I discovered him on YouTube. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. because I heard, I heard about a Greek young guy who was good and... Uh, I'm half Greek, so I always interested into, <laughs> I mean, into young uh, yeah, player, course, yeah, good yeah. players, potential uh, boys or girls. But of course, when they're Greek, it's a plus. So I checked on YouTube because uh, he was playing uh, juniors. I saw him at the Orange Bowl. I saw just one or two points, and I loved how he was handling the competition. I thought he was. He looked like a great competitor, and he happened to be. And he looked like someone who was taking responsibilities on the tennis court, like not expecting the mistake and just going for the shots, going to the net to finish up the points. And you don't see that very often with the young players. And I thought it was great. And when I get to know him better, I found out that he was really like that. And you're right, it's something that he worked on since he's a, he's a kid uh, with the guidance of his father. And, uh, and it's a great asset for him now. He's, he's definitely uh, going for it and, and looking at the big picture and what he wants to achieve rather than thinking about what's tomorrow with the points that he needs to defend or to gain. So that's interesting because when you when you first saw him, you were more drawn to the fact that he took responsibility rather than the fact the way he hit the ball. Or, so that yeah, to you was more important. Totally. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting you say that because I, I said a few days ago to someone... Uh, I hear everybody when they talk about the young guys, uh, oh, his, his forehand is unbelievable, he has great serve, he's physical. I say, yeah, okay, this is good, but this doesn't make the champions. Uh, that's not what I look at. I look at how they compete. It's th this, this sport is about competing. And you see that, I mean, uh, throughout the years, I, I found out that the guys who are the best competitors are the ones who are progressing faster than anyone else. Uh, and at the end, when it comes to the big matches, in the Grand Slams, it's the, the, the personalities that make the difference. So i rather look at that than, than the forehand. I mean, of course, this is good. This is important, too. But this is not what makes the difference. Yeah. And then talking about uh, another youngster you brought up, you know, Sitsipas still very young. Another youngster you're working with, Alexei Popper in Australia, and had a great Australian Open. It was a lot of excitement. There was a, so much ma fun match to watch against Pui. Lost to Isner and, and, and struggled a little bit here. But we were talking a little bit earlier off air about how you were saying like, you know, Isner with just the experience and knew how to start that match. What what could Popperin gain as far as a learning experience playing John Isner? Uh, first, uh, I think he's also a very exciting player. He's uh, one year younger than Stefanos, but he, he, he rose very fast in the rankings too. He's, he's close to top 100 already. Um, lost in the third one of the Australian Open. Uh, beat Dominic Thiem second round and lost to uh, in five sets to, to uh, Lucas Pui in the third round. I think he has a great game. Uh, actually, big serve, big forehand. Yeah. <laughs> um, but right, that's I, why I was surprised he didn't hold against John for a little while until yeah, the you're right. end. You're I'm right. nerves, I'm assuming. No, 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 but you're right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's surprising, but uh, first of all, when you play uh, John Isner, it's uh, intimidating when you're young. Uh, you know that you can't, you're not supposed to lose your serve, otherwise you probably lose the set. So that puts extra pressure. So I think he struggled a little bit at the start of the match uh, with this per percentage of first serves. And I said to you earlier that John played incredibly uh, smart, 
put so much pressure on all of uh, Alex's uh, second serves. Actually came to the net almost every time, so huge pressure. Uh, it paid off, uh, and and I think that um, I mean, Alexei uh, had really troubles to uh, to handle the pressure that uh, John put since the start of the match, and uh, throughout the whole match he struggled with his percentage of first serve, and his serve is one of his big assets. So it can I mean, I think John played with a lot of experience, a very smart match, and, and actually played really. I think very high level match. So, so next time Alexei would face that situation, obviously because it came down to the mental battle for him there. What what would be your advice going in? Where just to relax him a little bit more? Um, first of all, uh, I think that in, especially at the start of the match, I wouldn't go for uh, yeah big big serves, more percentage. I think it's very important. So you kind of feel you're in control of the rallies. Otherwise, you're never in control. Uh, I think the zones that he used with the serve were not 100% the right ones. But more than that, uh, I mean, when you play those that type of players, you have to you have to realize that the pressure is the mo one of the most important thing that's gonna have an impact on the results. So keep the pressure on him rather than let him input it on you. That's that's a lot about that. Once you can handle that. Then the match can can really start, but if you don't m manage that that part of the match, you're done. Um, I do want to ask you. You've been working with Serena for a long time, and um, incredible athlete, incredible champion. But the way she handles, for me mentally, those pressure moments is just absolutely astounding. And in, to to go through that experience with her and just to watch it over and over again. Um, what would be your advice for someone like these youngsters coming up, like a Sitsipas and Paparin, to, to con maintain that and continue that and handle those pressure moments as well as Serena does? Well, I think, first of all, Serena is unique. So, um, uh, of course, you have to look at the biggest champion uh, to try to get something for your game. Uh, and I think it's a great attitude, but uh, you can take everything. You mean she's unique um, with how she handles those moments? or She's unique in general. Just, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. She's probably the, the biggest champion of all times. Uh, so she's unique, and she's unique in that. I mean, not only in that, but also in that. I think her mentality, her, her the way she sees the game, the way she uh, sees the competition, the way she deals with the pressure... Um, can you explain a little bit how how she does that or yeah sure i think i think that champions don't think the same way as other people and i think that's the main difference between them and the others uh i think they put the they put the bar in terms of expectations very high for whatever they do even at practice like if she hits a double foot in practice she thinks and she says it and she thinks it's unprofessional that's not acceptable so that's how she sees it so she puts the, the bar incredibly high and she would never stop anything until she gets the results she wants at any practice or any time. It's an example of, I don't see many players do that. And I always say, I'm going to go see the practice and I'm going to see if the player w w wants to be number one or wishes to be one number one. It's a big difference. So it's, it's easy to talk. It's another thing to do. So she's, uh, I think her, again, the, she doesn't accept to do things under a level that she considers is acceptable. For example, this is an example. Uh, she always looks in front of her. She never looks behind, never. And I always tell that story because that was a great experience for me. When we start in 2012, so her first goal is to win a Grand Slam because it's two years, it's been two years without winning one. 
so she wins one, then she wins uh, with Wimbledon, then she wins she wins the Olympic in gold medal gold medal in the Olympics two weeks after, then she wins the U.S. Open, and then she wins the Masters. So she's really back on track. And then she tells me I'm struggling to win Rangaros. I don't know why. I, every year uh, I don't win. It's last time I won was in 2002. We're in 2013 now, and I can't. And I uh, okay. So so she basically she she tells me that's what she wants. So we I propose her a plan to win it. And she wins it in so 2013. She wins it 11 11 years after the first one. Right after the trophy ceremony, she comes to me and she says, "Come with me. I want to stretch." So she stretches, and literally five minutes during during the stretching, five minutes after, she turns to me and she says, "Okay, now we have to win Wimbledon." And I know at that moment that she already forgot she wins she won Rangaros, and it was and she was seeking that for 11 years. Five minutes after, it's done. What's next? So this. And I remember Rafa, when he won his first Rangaros, it was on a Sunday. The Monday after, he, he, he made an interview, and he said, now my goal is to win Wimbledon. And when he said that, I thought, wow, he already forgot that he won Rangaros. It's already in the past now. And that's one of also one of the characteristics of those people. When other guys, they win a, a tournament and they party for 10 years, you know? <laughs> I mean... I'm, I'm, it's human too, but I'm just saying that's that's a big difference. So yeah, the, for all those things, she she refuses that the income of anything is not what she wants, and you see that in some other champions. They're very rare, uh, but I, I mean the great competitors, and I've seen uh, I've seen Andy Murray a few times do that. Of course, uh, the others that I don't need to name anymore, um, like. When the things when things go wrong, you f I know she thinks this is not going to happen that way. There is no way I'm going to lose this match. And then she's able to find resources that she has because, but other people have too, but they don't find them because of the mindset. Because maybe some people accept sometimes that okay, this is not my day. Okay, I'm not feeling the ball. Okay, the other one is playing unbelievable. All these things she doesn't. No, she can play the best match of her life on the other side I, it's not my problem i'm gonna find a way i mean this is different right yeah absolutely so yeah. this is it's what amazing those to hear, young yeah. People, yeah but this is exactly how those guys think uh, rafa's thinking the yeah. same novak's thinking the same um, so roger so of course of course and so i want in your with so much experience that you have do you feel like you've come up with a, any sort of strategy to be able to get that mindset into the other players that you work with I mean, it's tough. It's not. It's not about saying it. Um, I mean, uh, and that's what is very interesting about coaching. If it was just about telling them, okay, like Serena thinking like that, so you think like that, and it's going to work, it would be too easy, and that would make our job not interesting at all. You have to understand the psychology of the people. Uh, you should never compare them with others. You should never tell them, okay, Serena's doing that. You should do the same because. In a way, when you say that, you just tell them that they're not as good as her, which is something uh, that's not very exciting, I think, to hear. So it's a lot about psychology. Uh, make the people feel good, feel confident, feel trust you, follow follow you, because if you want to have an impact on the players, they need to, to follow you. Uh, not in a stupid way, of course, because they trust you, because they also rely a little bit on, on you. They have to rely on them most of it. Most, I mean, that's the most important is to, to trust yourself and believe in yourself for any player. <laughs> but, uh, but we can, of course, we can help. 
Um, but yeah, you have to find a way to bring them there uh, without telling them. That's basically what the job is about. And that's what makes it very interesting. And I always say, you know, if you work with a player it, and it works, and then you think you're going to do the same thing with another one and it's going to work too, you're totally wrong. And again, that's why our job is so exciting because every time is completely different. And we start with a, a white page every time. And that's every time I work with a different player, I think, okay, I don't know anything. I forget everything I've learned. And I start from zero because I get to learn that player. Once I will know that player well, maybe I, I will find solutions for him or for her. But I have to start from, from scratch. And you know where you have to bring them, you don't know how. Yeah. And you have to find out. That's awesome. I love the challenge. I love it. I can see it in your face. It's a good challenge. Um, last question, because I, I know you're busy. But um, just talking about Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic, and Serena, I'm going to throw her into that mix as well, since you've worked with her for so long. Just the longevity of these guy of everyone's careers, and just talk about like wh what do you feel like helps them maintain that hunger and motivation after having so many titles and being on the tour for so long? It's an incredible feat. Oh, yes, that's absolutely incredible. Uh, I mean, there are so many things to say about those three. First, I would like to say that. In general, the careers are longer than before. And I see one reason for that is that there is better preparation. There are more people around them. They're better surrounded now with a lot of professionals, fitness coach, of course, uh, the physios. And I think the bodies are better trained than before. The way we players could not afford to have those people around them. So that makes a big difference. But there's much more than that in those three because, as you said, it's more about the hunger. When you've won so much, how do you keep that hunger? And it's a question that people ask me about Serena all the time. Well, I think when you're winning, when you're winning uh, so much, when you're still at the top of the, the world, it's difficult to stop. I mean, why would you stop? And this, they're all three still winning a lot of matches. And I think that's the best motivation you can have when you're a competitor. If they would not win anymore, I think they would have stopped, all of them. They're not players that accept not to be able to win. Uh, they all feel they can still win Grand Slams, otherwise they would be out of the game. Uh, and that's the number, I would say that's the number one thing. The number two, or maybe the other one is the number one, I don't know, but it's the love for the game. Uh, those players definitely love the game. Uh, otherwise they would not have become the champions they are, for sure. And the last thing I want to say, I think it's amazing, and I don't know how if we realize how much the, we live in an incredible moment of, of our game yes absolutely <laughs> when Sampras won 14 grand slams everyone said this record is insane nobody no one will ever beat it we have three guys who already have beaten that playing at the same time imagine if there was only one of the three how many grand slams they would have <laughs> any one of the three yeah. unbelievable because how many grand slams did Novak uh, prevent Roger or Rafa from winning. And we can say the same about Rafa, about the two others, or Roger about the two others. So, I mean, it, probably the three greatest players of all times are playing at the same time. That's insane. And that's why they, they've won so many Grand Slams since the last years. And it gives even more credit to Stan and Di Murray, uh, Del Potro, who won one, Cilic, who won one. Those the two f first that I named won three. Does to be able to win Grand Slams 
<laughs> while the three greatest of the game are playing. That's a great it's, point. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's unbelievable what mm -hmm. they did. I'm sitting in the player dining and I'm pleased to be joined by high number 12 in the world singles and high number three in doubles, Paul Anacone. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on ATP Tennis Radio. And thanks for having me. Now, I talked to you last year here at this event, so it's been over a year, and I spoke to you last year about Taylor Fritz because you were working with him, and you're still quite involved with Taylor. I am. David Nankin um, is Taylor's full-time coach, and I have been fortunate enough to join the team for the last 15 months or so, and uh, it's been nice. Taylor's had a, had a good year last year, finishing in the top 50 of the world, went up from a right around 100 to 49, so he's uh, made some good progress and still working at it, so a lot of good things to come, we hope. And what, what do you feel like has improved the most in his uh, game? Well, I think he's starting to understand playing at a higher level, um, just the comprehensive nature of it, how you have to be just about better at everything. Um, and to be able to do it day in and day out against the world's best is very different than having one good day. And to see that it happens every week and, and what it takes to sustain that level and to continue to try to improve, it's a, it's a lot of work. And, and I think that he gravitates towards a lot of work. He likes that. So if he can stay healthy and keep his mind uh, straight and focused, hopefully the, the ranking keeps going up. And I noticed as well he played um, doubles with Nick Kyrgios. Did, I, yeah. yeah, I watched that last match. They just looked like they were having so much fun. They, Is that? Yeah, they did have a good time. And they played together in Brisbane. They get along well. And, and um, actually, I thought they played a good match. They played a good match and lost in a match tiebreak. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it was fun watching those guys play. And, and I think, you know, as long as Taylor... Like I said to him, I, I just want him to keep trying to get better. And doubles gives him that opportunity to do that, too. He can work on his serve, his returns, um, work on the volley. So there's a lot of things you can get out of the doubles to help you become a more well-rounded player. And I think Taylor likes that. And how does that transition over to singles? Well, I think it's just a matter of trying to become a better tennis player, right? It gives you all the little nuances that maybe you don't use as much in singles, being a little bit more adept around the net, um, serving and volleying a little bit, enough so that you can do that once in a while. Uh, just those little subtleties and doubles, um, kind of the ability to manipulate yourself in court position up at the net, the reflexes, uh, things like that, practicing returning to targets. So I think there's a lot of good um, components or ingredients in doubles that can help you make um, become a better tennis player. And then just talking about, I know you worked with um, Federer for a little while, so just talk about you know, how, how impressed you are with, well, I mean, obviously you can throw Nadal and Djokovic in the mix as well, just how impressed you are with the longevity of these guys' games and just how they still have that hunger and motivation to keep going. Yeah, the amazing thing to me isn't, isn't that they can play well still. It's generally that they can play consistently well. You know, they're playing less tournaments, which means there's uh, less margin for error with bad losses. They still have a couple of them here and there, but almost every match they're out there, they're so solid. And to me, that's what's amazing because on the big day, on the big stage, they can still elevate, but week in and week out, to see them persevere in conditions that can be challenging with young players who are really hungry and to ultimately still really want to do that, that that's incredible to me and it shows you how much they love the game and love the sport so look I, I just want to keep cherishing every day we get to see them play because when they <laughs> when they're done it's going to be look we're going to have plenty of great players but I always feel like when greats leave they break the mold new greats will come along but uh Rafa and Roger will be seriously missed. And, and these youngsters that are coming up, do you, do you feel 
you have your eye on anyone in particular that would be I'm a new a, great? I have my eye on all of them. You yeah. know, I think that there's a whole handful. We've talked about a couple of the Canadians and Ali Asim and Shapovalov. I think... Um, I think also Francis TFO, I think Taylor, these guys can be, you know, buying in last weekends of majors as well. So, so much of what's going to happen is going to be dependent on, I think, the timing out of when the greats start to play less at the majors and when the younger guys start to peak and feel more comfortable at the majors. But there's going to be opportunity and uh, it's going to be fun to see which one of the young players um, first steps up to the plate to play for a major title. Yeah, I agree. I think it's an exciting time. I think there's a lot of fun ones to watch too. And I just want to end with like, I, I read an article about a quote that I absolutely loved that you said. I was reading an article and it says, your coaching philosophy, I'm just going to read it. It says, you're only as good as you are on your average day, so you better be able to figure stuff out. Yeah. absolutely love that quote. Can you just explain that a little yeah, bit I mean, in more detail? Yeah, you know, I really... That's kind of, I think that's where a lot of players go wrong. I think a lot of players and I think a lot of coaches from what I've seen and been a part of, they practice uh, seeking perfection. You know, they practice hard and hope to play perfect tennis. And and I actually learned this from a 23-year-old Pete Sampras. And, And back when I started with him, Pete said to me, look, my biggest talent really isn't that I can play great. When I play great, that's easy because I'm going to beat everybody anyway. My biggest talent is if I keep my mind straight, if I play average, I'm going to beat most of the guys anyway. And so that philosophy of accepting not playing perfect tennis helps you deal with adversity on the court, helps you manage the days that aren't great. And let's be honest, I mean, you played, it's, you have a handful of great matches, a handful of horrible matches, and the rest is what makes you up. So, so what do you do on those days? How well can you think through adversity? How well can you change tactics when you need to? You know, can you stay in the moment without being too critical of yourself? Can you deal with the stresses and pressures? So those average days really decide how good you're going to be. And, and that's, and I've seen it. I saw it firsthand with Pete and I saw it firsthand with Roger as well. For their level, I've seen them win a lot of matches when they play average. And the thing is, they win those matches, and then they don't criticize themselves afterwards. They take pride in the fact that, ah, didn't play great today, but I found a way. Did a couple good things. Here's a couple things I need to work on tomorrow. Very pragmatic, and go out and do the next day's work. So it's the ability to deal with the ebbs and flows of the emotion without letting it rock your boat so much. I think I remember having this conversation with Taylor Den a while ago. We were talking, and I mean, he had a really long career as well. And I remember him telling me, out of all the matches he played, he said he could count on one hand the amount of times he played absolutely perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Less yeah. than five. Yeah, yeah. No, 100% agree. And then what do you do in those moments? And Look, it's not about not wanting to play. We all want to play great. That's silly. I mean, we all do. But the fact of the matter is you're not going to very much. So what what do you do then? And then what do you do when not only you're not playing well, but there's other adversity? You're playing badly or you're sick or you've gotten in an argument with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or you lost your passport or, you know, it's like there's a million things that can go wrong. How well can you get that tunnel vision going out on the court where you don't let it distract you of the ultimate goal, which is trying to execute whatever your game plan is on that day? And and for you in particular, who's worked with, um, you know, Roger and like what what exactly do you think is that how do you get to that mental place where you're not maybe playing great but you figure it out I think it's practiced you know I really do you know you look at someone like Rafael Nadal as well and he's incredibly intense but 
he's very pragmatic about imperfection. He's very pragmatic about, you know, just go out and all that matters is how hard I try on the next point and being clear about that. And, and I think when you do that in practice day in and day out, year after year, and you start it as an adolescent and then through your teenage years, that becomes your default mode. That becomes how you operate. So it's not, it's not a lot of work because that's what you're used to doing. I'm a really big believer in habit forming. And so all the kids at the younger ages, I always would encourage their coaches and those kids to have all the good habits, forehands, backhands, mental, everything should be good habits because all those things come into such big play down the road because you're creating um, things that reoccur, right? And, and if they're good habits, those good habits will come out in the end. And if they're not, then all of a sudden when a player's 20 or 21 years of age and you try to break those habits, it is really difficult. Well, I am back in player dining, and I'm happy to be joined on ATP Tennis Radio with former player high number 22 in singles and number 10 in the world in doubles, Darren Cahill. Thank Darren, you. thank you for joining us. Thank you. Is there a better player dining than this place I anywhere know. in the world? It's beautiful. I don't think so, but I'm a little biased because I only live two hours away. <laughs> so uh, first of all, I, you're now working um, for ESPN. I yes. mean, you've been working for ESPN, mm -hmm. and you just recently finished um, coaching. Was that a difficult decision for you? Yeah, it was. Simona's kind of part of my family and we've been together for about four years and three of those years was just her full time. Prior to that, I was working with Adidas in the player development role. So I was with quite a few players. So yeah, three years with one person, uh, they become part of your family. I spent more time with Simona than I did with my actual family. So it was because things were going great. She was year end number one. She'd won the French Open for the first time, but just so many, I'm getting a little old now. So many weeks away no, from not. home, uh, so many years coaching, and uh, my boy's turning 18 this year, and he's doing his last year of school and wants to go off to college next year. So there were many things that contributed to just taking a year off the coaching and instead of traveling the 35 weeks a year, which has been the way it's been for the last 20 or so years, uh, doing about 10 or 12 this year with ESPN and spending more time at home. So I know because so much of the focus is on the players and what they do, mm -hmm. and I don't think people realize how difficult that is for a coach as well, being away from home so often, and, and obviously to come to terms with that. So the, the most you're traveling now would be 10 to 12 weeks with, the, yep. with ESPN. ESPN. Yes. Was there any, any thought in your mind that you might just do the coaching for a small bit, a period of time? Is that something you miss? Yeah, that was an option, of course. I've always been of the belief that if you're going to do something, you do it to the best of your ability. And to do a, a part-time coaching role, for some people it works, for me it doesn't. I think that to give 10 or 12 weeks and be more of a consultant, you can, you can help players for sure, but I think it can be frustrating when you're used to being the coach, the, the main coach. And so I've always felt like that if I was going to do it, I wanted to do it as, as well as I could. And doing anything less than 30 weeks is not really doing the full job because it is a full-time job. It's 24-7. All those little changes that you're trying to make to somebody's game or psychology on the court or the mental side of things, you have to keep working on it. And so you need to spend a lot of time with the player to get the best result, I believe. Now, for some other coaches, it might be a little bit different and they might be much better than I am and they might be able to get the job done in 10 or 12 weeks, but I can't. I need those weeks on the road to, to feel like at least that I'm giving the best possible and doing the best job I can. And to do the best possible, I mean, so much of it is off the court too, would you agree? I mean, so how, how much as far as like, 
do you get into the players' lives as far as like off-court and making sure they're they're doing things off-court just as well as on yep. the court? Well, it's a bit of a balance as well. You, I still think you need to give the player some space and some room to have their own life. And, and as much as possible, I'd send Simona home and tell her, <laughs> go and be a normal chick. Go and have a couple of weeks off and go spend time with friends and go out and go to nightclubs and do whatever you need to do to... to have that other life to get away from tennis so I know when you do come back to tennis you're going to be refreshed ready to work hard and when we go to work then that's what we're doing we're here to play tennis and try to win as many as much as possible and and to make as much improvement as possible so there's a balance you certainly it does spill over from the coaching side to the personal life as well but you find that balance I think which works best for the player and everybody's a little bit different and, and before Simona, you also, of course, worked with Leighton Hewitt, yep. Andre Agassi. Just talk about the difference between maybe coaching a women as compared to the men, or if there is a difference. Not much. I get asked that question all the time, to be honest. It's the same size tennis court, same principles apply. The women work just as hard as the men. Actually, I think Simona may work as hard as anybody I've ever worked with. She doesn't spend as much time on the court maybe as the men, but certainly the effort into every practice session was 101%. She doesn't leave anything behind in the locker room. So I always respected that with her and that was part of the reason why I took the job with her three or four years ago. I think the psychology of the game is a little bit different. The, the women, if I was to sum it up, the women naturally don't have the big strengths or the kill shots to finish matches. So for the women, it becomes a little more of an emotional battle. When you get into a winning position, sticking to the game plans, not looking to finish points too quickly, they don't have the big serve where they can win the easy points, unless you're Serena, of course. And they don't, for a lot of the occasions, have the, the big one weapon that can just get you to the finish line like it can be for the men. So you have to keep working, even if you're up. 6-1-5-1 you have to stick to the game plan you have to keep working because if you waver at any particular moment one or two points can send the match the other way I think that's the big difference in the women's game with the men's game when the men get up a set and a break to a large extent they can start coasting and still find the finish line that's why we see a lot of women's matches turn around on a dime is because they have to keep sticking to the game plan I mentioned those a couple guys. Um, I know you've coached more than than just those three players, but I mentioned those couple guys in particular because I read something online that I, I find fascinating. Huge accolades to you, but you coached Leighton Hewitt to be the youngest number one yeah. ever, and then Andre Agassi to be the oldest number one player ever in the world. I mean, that that's amazing to me. Until that bloody guy, Roger Federer, came along. And then and Roger Federer, yeah, yeah, that's right. Who in the hell is he anyway? Yeah. <laughs> no, I was immensely proud of that. And obviously, I worked with Leighton when he was a 12-year-old. So I had this little guy who was dressed in Agassi clothes with about six rackets in a backpack knock on my front door and, and asked to come in and hit some tennis balls in my backyard when he was 12 years of age and had huge respect for him and his work ethic and knew straight away that he was going to be something special. I didn't realize, obviously, that he was going to be a top 10 player and eventually the number one player in the world but you could see that hunger and desire even as a 12 year old that was separated him from the rest so that was a wonderful journey it was nine years with Leighton and then the last five years with Andre completely different spectrum I went from a, a guy who was basically a sponge uh, sucking up anything that you could give him and looking for information to a guy who was already an all-time legend had already won seven major championships 32 years of age some problems with injuries so we didn't quite know if that job was going to be six weeks six months or six years and in the end it was really a credit to him because he was the one at 32 years of age that was breaking new boundaries 
ready to work, ready to learn new stuff. And yeah, a year and a half later, he went back to number one in the world. So for me personally, he'd already been number one in the world, so it wasn't a big deal for him. But for me, it was a big deal. So it was really special. But I was curious about that because, um, like, did that change how you approached each player at all as a coach? No, no, not really. Uh, every player is different. Uh, for me, it's more the work ethic and the person I don't want to get involved with people I don't like and so you get to know the person you get to know the work ethic you get to know whether or not they're willing to do the work to get the best out of themselves whether that be having a career high ranking as 100 in the world or lucky enough for me being one in the world but it's more about the person and I had a chance when I was working for Adidas to work with a bunch of players and I enjoyed most of them but you could quickly see the ones that were a bit limited to how much potential uh, ranking rise they would have because of either the personality they had or the work ethic they had or how they handled the big moments. You get to find that out really quickly. Is And I didn't handle big moments great when I was a player. Like how so? Did you not handle it well? Nerves played a part, um, not believing in myself a little bit, going away from what made me a good player when I was playing well because you sink back into old habits. The great players in the world have an ability to have this inner belief that they just don't care who's on the other side of the court. They feel like their game is good enough to get to, to get the win. And they go out there and they attack it and they do it. And, and the amazing thing about all three players is if they have a major disappointment, it's gone within 30 minutes of the match and they're ready for the next challenge. I didn't have that. Uh, if I had a bad loss, it would stay with me for weeks. I don't know how you were, but... I was exactly I, like that I, I, I suffered. stay with me way too long. Yeah, and you think it because you feel like that was it. That was the opportunity. But these guys, they have those opportunities week in, week out. So for them, it's more business-like and more belief in what they're able to So accomplish. how do you get to that point? Which, I mean... To a certain extent, I think you're born with it. Uh, it's a, it's an upbringing. It's a, a belief in your own ability. It's, it's knowing that you're ticking all the boxes and getting the work done to get to a certain point and in a belief that I think it could be from your parents it could be your parents telling you you're going to be the greatest player in the world which was a little bit like Andre and dad his dad believed that Andre was going to be the greatest player in the world and that's what Andre believed when he first started playing so yeah, I think you can train it to a certain extent. That's what I was going to ask you. Can you practice it? Yeah, you can practice it. You can train it. I think it's more mental than it is anything else. But I think a lot of it comes from the inside the person, what they already have. So, so if you're on the court working with a player and you start to see them go down the road yeah. where they're not letting it go, do you step right in right yeah, away? Yeah, that's or a coach's you... responsibility. Okay. Absolutely. Because there's a part where you know you might want them to learn how to take responsibility themselves yeah. as well, but you would step in right away. Everybody, everybody is a little bit different, and certainly you want a player that can problem solve and recognize those moments and make adjustments and turn those around. But if it's a recurring problem, then you have to make the player aware of that problem because if they're not aware of the problem, they're never going to be able to fix it so they would get to a point like Simona it was a big issue with her in matches letting matches slip by when the pressure was on and so she had to acknowledge the problem and then you can start addressing it and and it's not an easy thing because those old habits keep coming back in those big moments but she did a remarkable job in the last couple of years of winning a lot of matches when she wasn't playing great tennis and that's also a big quality that a champion has is that their average level can get them through those average those bad days and you stay alive and you come back to fight the next day and you don't get to number one in the world without having incredible fighting abilities winning a ton of matches when you're not playing great or you wake up on the other side of the bed and also stepping up in the big moments and winning the big matches. It's a recurring theme. I just talked to Paul Anago and he said exactly the same thing. Figuring out how to win when you're not playing yeah, your best exactly. and, yeah. and most of the time you're not. Great. I mean, you yeah. can only rely on your average and we can all go out there and have a hot day but how often does that happen? Uh, 
four or five times a year where you feel like, oh my God, I can't miss a ball. And that great day is in your love to be like that every day, but that doesn't happen. That's not reality. So you have to find ways to get through those days where you're playing fine, everything is okay, but it's a struggle. And you're working out how to get through that struggle to survive for the next match. And, you know, we've talked about Andre and, and Leighton, and now, now talking about the guy, you know, talking about Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, I mean, they're still at their best, obviously, but um, you mentioned, you know, work ethic, mm-hmm. you know, taking responsibility, getting through those struggles. Are there any of these, all these youngsters coming up now on the men's side, are there any ones in particular that you feel that have those attributes that you're talking about? Alexander Zverev definitely has it. Obviously, he has a little bit of an issue at the moment in the majors, but in the ATP events, he's been stunning. And the way he's been able to step up and best of three matches is he's right up there with those top four guys. I, I put Murray in that group as well because those four guys came through and they changed tennis to a large degree. Their dominance, their work ethic, the way they raised the level of tennis over the last 10 years is a credit to them. And it's taken everybody a long while to play catch up. And we're still playing catch up to a large extent. Tsitsipas has that strut, that swagger, we say. He certainly has a lot of belief on the court. I don't know that his game is quite there just yet. Obviously, making the semis How of so, the Aussie. How so, would you Open. say? Yeah, the Aussie, making the semis of the Aussie. You know what he does do, which I think is remarkable, is he can be losing a match and being completely outplayed somehow he finds a way to get himself back into those matches. And and that's because of that self-belief and that walk he has around the court and because he does problem solve. He does work out things pretty quickly on a court. If you have a look to 2018, the amount of times he was down and out and just about in the locker room as a loser and the way he turned around those matches and won, that's why he had a great year last year. So that's a great quality to have. To win a major, you need to have the upside as well, the, the high-class quality game that can get you through a quarters, a semis, and a final in a best-of-five set match. And so over the next couple of years, that'll improve. Um, so he definitely has it. I think there's a bunch of young players coming through that you can certainly look to that are going to uh, win majors over the next five or ten years, but they still need Novak and Rafa and Roger to retire. Because if they don't retire... I think that's been the consensus. Honestly, it's been remarkable that Novak not so much because he's a little bit younger, but for Rafa and for for Roger to still be doing what they're doing at their ages is we're in a golden age. I don't think we've ever seen this before and we'll never see it again. The dominance these guys have had over the last 10 or 15 years has been remarkable. Novak to be able to rip away 15 of those majors and counting has been remarkable as well and then you throw in Andy Murray that in any different era he may have won 12, 14 Grand Slams titles so the fact that he's won three and he's done it the hard way a couple of gold medals uh, full credit to him because it's been a, a very stingy era for everyone but Murray, Djokovic, Nadal and Federer. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely didn't mean to disregard any of the other players, of yeah. course. I mean, Murray, I, I miss Murray, and hopefully we'll yeah. see we'll see him back. I know he got the surgery, um, so hopefully we'll be seeing him back. And there, like you said, there's so many and um, that we can touch on. But I do want to touch on some of the Aussies, yeah. um, since you probably know them. I know there's been a lot of talk about Diminar. Yeah. Uh, Hewitt's been mentoring him quite a bit. And then Kyrgios, of course, is always in the mix. What's your take on, on yeah, him? I think everybody's the same, but... To get him to be a normal cookie-cutter tennis player is going to be impossible. I, I figure everybody should have worked that out by now. Nick is Nick. And so you either jump on the train and enjoy the ride, or you get off and don't worry so much about all the stuff that goes on. And honestly, I enjoy the ride. I, I, I think watching him, whether he's having a bad day or having a good day, is entertaining, or it's brilliant to watch the way he plays tennis. So having different types of personalities for the tour is a good thing. 
but you still need to be respectful and you still need to do the right things. At times he can cross the line and go the wrong side. And I think over the last couple of years he's gotten a lot better at that. He's matured a little bit and we've seen uh, the, the way he played in Acapulco when he's playing for a, with a purpose and, and with a drive and fighting through all those matches. And he doesn't have to be running for every single ball to be entertaining or to be brilliant, but he just has to pick the right moments to give us that 100% effort. And if you can find that balance, he'll be okay. So if you were to coach him, if. What, what would you say? <laughs> you know, honestly, I'm too old for him. I don't even, I'm an 18 year old boy. I barely understand 20% of the stuff that he says. And, and Nick's of that era, I think. It's the new generation that I'm old school and old school work ethics, old school principles. And it doesn't work so well for the younger generation, I don't think. So I, he would never ask me to coach him, but I'm sure that uh, we wouldn't be a good match you in never that know. respect anyway. But I love watching him and I'm a fan of him. You know, I'm. I'm like everybody, I scratch my head at some of the stuff he does, but I certainly have a big smile when he's playing well and doing what he did in Acapulco because uh, I know that a Nick Kyrgios playing great tennis is exciting for the men's game. He needs to put the work in off the court. Do you think he... he'll decide to get a coach? Uh, you know, a coach for him I think is not that important because his IQ on the tennis court is actually pretty good. If When you watch him play, rarely, rarely do you go, ah, Nick, that was the wrong shot. You don't say that very often when he plays. That's true. It's more about the physical with him and making sure that he's putting the work in off the court so he can sustain that run of playing back-to-back-to-back matches. And that's even more evident in the Grand Slams. And that's when you need to be physically stronger. So if he's putting the work in over the court, over, off the court, then that's going to give him a better chance. That's more important, I think, than getting a coach. He'll get a coach when he's ready. Now, and I do want to also talk about Diminar because yeah. he's one that's been, you know, up and coming, very exciting to watch and... Um, yeah, he definitely has the work ethic. When you watch him play, you can just tell. And just your thoughts on him about, especially his stature, very similar to, to Hewitt, Layton, I would exactly. say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Similar work ethic, uh, similar principles when he walks onto the court. Uh, you can see that there's a, already uh, a couple of years working together with Leighton. There's a lot of Leighton inside him, the way he approaches his tennis. The ball jumped off Leighton's racket a little bit faster than what jumps off Alex's racket. So Alex has to work harder for all of his points than what Leighton did. And why was that? A bit you of think? technique. Technique. Uh, okay. Yeah, Leighton had really good technique from his coach Peter Smith in Adelaide when he was a youngster growing up. Gave him great technique, so his timing was always perfect. His uh, feet position, getting in line with the ball and pushing through the line of the court, was always great. So he had great timing, and that meant he could find that easy power. And for a guy of Leighton's size, he needed that. Alex has to work harder for all of his shots. So when he's out of position a little bit, then he doesn't get the weight of shot on the ball that Leighton used to get. So that hurts him a little bit because the guys can overpower him a little bit at the moment. That'll improve over the next couple of years, but certainly a top 10 player, no question. And, and once in this generation, if you get to the top 10, you can win majors. It's going to be open for everybody. And, and then also, there I mean, there's so many, right? I mean, Millman, unbelievable work ethic. Ebden, Thompson, Bolton, and Popperin, both yep. having great Australian Opens, yep. a lot of energy there. That yep. They were really fun to watch in yep. Oz this year. Yeah, Leighton's put together a nice crew of players that are working together and pushing each other to get better. And, and some of those names you mentioned are not young players. Right. Bolt's not young, Millman's not young, but they're giving everything they have to be as good as they possibly can. And what that's going to do is it's going to push the younger generation, guys like Popperin, guys like Demonor coming through, and it's going to be a great example of, as to what you need to do to be as good as you can be. And, and I think that's great. And, I, and just last question, I, I am noticing in this younger generation that's coming up that there are more all-around court players are looking to come in a little bit more. Do you that's think great. the game is going to be, yeah. I mean, obviously it's already going that way. Do you yeah. think that's crucial to get to the top from now on? 
even guys like Nadal, Novak to a less extent, uh, Roger of course changed his game the last two or three years, realised that you've got to get to the net. And even to finish points quicker, it's better for the body as well. Just getting stuck in long matches and, and these brutal four or five hour matches the men were playing at the Grand Slams, it, it shaves years off your career, I believe. And, and they're starting to be better educated at when to come in and, and where to cover and how fast to get in. And Nadal's a good volleyer. But he's one of the most efficient volleyers the game has ever seen because his first two or three steps forward is like a sprinter out of the blocks. And he knows when to come forward. And I think that's what players are realising. OK, you don't have to be the greatest volleyer in the world. You just have to know when to come forward. And I think the coaches are coaching that much better than they were 10 years ago. Well, that is it for this week. Thank you once again to Darren Cahill, Paul Anacone and Patrick Moratoglu. Also to Jill Krabus with the questions. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to hear more interviews, head to the ATP Tennis Radio exclusives channel on TuneIn. And remember, we are live from first ball to last every day of the clay court swing. That's Monte Carlo, Barcelona, Madrid and Rome. And we also rebroadcast the radio Roland Garros output from the French Open. If you just want an update and have a smart speaker, ask it for ATP Tennis News. You can get in touch on Twitter and Instagram. That's at ATP Tennis Radio. Or you can email us at studio at atptennisradio.com. If you're listening on iTunes, please leave us a review. Otherwise, enjoy the tennis. We'll catch you next week.